championship on the line right here. He's going for the corner. He's got it. Hello and welcome to 4th and 5, your Longhorn Nation podcast. I'm your host, Will Bazer. I'm joined alongside by Darius Terrell, as always. You guys are listening to the Hornscast channel. The Hornscast channel you can find on any podcasting platform out there. We're in the middle of the honeymoon period for Steve Sarkeesian. He came in, he got all the media attention, he got all the social media attention, he got the attention of recruits, he got the attention of players. He's coming off a big win. Everything is looking good at Texas right now. Everybody is excited. You got a new transfusion of energy into the program. The honeymoon period is here. It happens for every new coach. We're going to talk about the honeymoon period of fans, the press conference, what we took away with it, the recruits in their honeymoon period right now, as Steve Sarkeesian has already pulled in a recruit, a commit, before he even started talking officially as the Texas head coach. Then talk about the obstacles facing Steve Sarkeesian including extending that honeymoon period as long as he can and building the staff under him at Texas. Darius, how you been, man? It's been an interesting few days for the Longhorns, feeling what it's like to be an Alabama fan and taking that into the press conference. Yeah, man. What's up, man? What's up, everybody? It's been a busy week for myself with, the, you know, of course, everything. But, of course, for Texas fans and for – for the football program, it's been real busy. It's been a lot going on, man. You, you talked about uh, Alabama fans. I don't feel sorry for them. I think they're pretty used to the to the coaching turnover. I'm pretty sure I was reading some earlier. That entire 2017 championship staff was gone. So they're used to coaching turnover. Well, they ain't worried about it. Even recruits now. I, I read something today about the Brockermar saying, oh, they, they, they expected to at some point have two coaches, <laughs> two position coaches during their term just because it's Alabama and he just rolls in coaches like that. So um, I don't feel too sorry for them. An interesting stat that I was going to bring up later in the show is since 2004, Nick Saban has had 14 different coordinators and eight of them have gone on to become head coaches. 17 of his assistants have become FBS head coaches. Five have become NFL head coaches. And that's a mind-boggling high percentage relative to the rest of college football. Now, don't ask me about their success rates as coaches in those different fields, but what happens at Alabama when you have a coach as good? I mean, one of the best coaches ever, maybe the best coach ever in Nick Saban. What those coaches do separate from him has nothing to do with him. but, But what you see now is that Alabama, Nick Saban himself, what he's done is he's built a culture. Okay. He's built something that, um, coaches buy into when they come in, no matter who they are. So, and the players, obviously, I mean, it's from the top down. It's a uniform type deal. And, um, for Texas to get their coach, um, from there and for him to be able to poach guys that have been there working there for multiple years that have been, uh, integral figures, um, especially when it comes to, you know, raiding the state of Texas, there's definitely reason for excitement. So no, let's get going. Let's get into it. Um, yeah. we got a lot to talk about. Yeah. Today. We'll talk about the honeymoon. Let's get into it because every Longhorn fan who was even wary, a little bit wary of the coaching hire is now full on board. There are a few people out there right now who are not on board with Steve Sarkeesian. Personally, I'm always a little bit cautious. I always seem to pull against the current where everybody is super happy, I'm a little bit more cautious. When everybody is a lot more cautious, I'm a little bit more bullish. You know, I guess this is just me, but I'm still a little bit wary of Steve Sarkeesian, and we'll get into that later, but the press conference. Darius, I know you don't really listen to press conferences, do you? No, right? I'm not a big fan. 
<laughs> I've been multiple places where a coach saying one thing in the meetings and then I watch him on TV the next day and say the complete opposite. So it's just it's hard to it's hard to know what's what, what's real. Um I'm of the opinion that pretty much every coach wins the press conference, you know. But um no, go ahead. Say what you got to say. No, exactly. I mean, that's one thing about press conferences and especially these first honeymoon press conferences, right? There's very little room for failure unless you just do not say the right things and you just do not. Everybody's going to take something away from that press conference that is positive. Like what I'm about to do. He said all the right things, right? When it comes to the press conference, he reached out to Texas high school football coaches and, you know, lent them a, an olive branch and said, hey, my door is wide open for you and you can come in whenever. He's already gone to the Texas football coaches conference and talked with those guys. He's talked about Derek K. Royal and Mac Brown and tugged at the heartstrings and emotional strings of Longhorn fans. He repeatedly mentioned how great the Texas brand is. He talked about the weak and the timid and how they, they won't be in charge of, what is it? Oh, yeah, it's the, it's the saying, yeah, the pride and winning tradition of the Texas Longhorns will not be entrusted to the weak nor the timid. I, I right, remember exactly that for some that reason. One. I, Why it's, I it's don't on a know. Board. I should know yeah. it by heart by now. I know somebody's going to get mad at me for not knowing that. But he said all the right things, including also said the right things about the eyes of Texas. And Darius, since you didn't hear what he said, I'll go ahead and read it all out. He said, I know this much. The eyes of Texas is our school song. We support that song. We're going to sing that song. We're going to sing it proudly. We can put our heads in the sand and act like things aren't happening. We have to really have those discussions with them and educate our players to make sure that we're all on the same page. So we took a shot at Tom Herman there. I think sometimes there are tough decisions that need to be ha- that need to happen. Without speaking too candidly, we're living in the country right now where there's some turmoil going on. As long as we can have those discussions and be on the same page, we can do that. As it pertains to the eyes of Texas, that is our song. We are fired up to sing it. So, uh, you know, on top of saying the right things in terms of the head coaches and tugging at the heartstrings and saying just all the right things you're supposed to say in an introductory press conference, you know, he basically said the right, quote unquote, right thing about the eyes of Texas. And as, as, far as, as far as boosters are concerned. Exactly, exactly. But basically what he's saying and what he's doing is putting the lid on top of a grease fire on a stove. The immediate fire is being stuffed out, but there's still some bubbling, boiling oil in there. And he knows that. Sure. That's basically yeah. what's happening here. Yeah, I mean, he it got it got Herman fired. So I mean, I'm I'm sure it was it might have been the first thing that was brought up in the in the interview process. I mean, he, right. he's out in front of it for sure. But one thing I think you can take away from the interview and from interviews in the past and the one he did with Scott Van Pelt is he has some humility. He understands he is fallible, and adaptation may be needed. It's just something that's important going forward, especially for a job as big as Texas in a rapidly changing game that is college football. It's something that you didn't see with Tom Herman. It's something that you've seen, you haven't seen with a, a few other coaches. It's a guy who can look inward. And I think that he said it in a few different ways. The first one being him saying, this isn't a destination day for me. And it goes to his all gas, no breaks mantra, which means nothing is the destiny. There's always a way to get better and to succeed further. And when I think about that, I think about, a guy who everybody knows, Scipio Tex. He's a great writer, and he does great stuff. He's also very smart. He talked about positive insecurity in his own, I believe his own podcast. 
when it comes to insecurities, when working and leading, there are two different types. He talked about positive and negative insecurities. And when he described somebody who is negatively insecure, it is somebody who is worried about who they are. So as they face adversity or just live life in general, they double down on who they are and are stubborn towards change. On the other side, the positively insecure person is somebody who is always looking over their shoulder. Somebody who's always insecure that somebody is trying to overtake them, that somebody is going to do better than them. An insecurity that causes somebody to keep trying to improve what they are doing because they feel as if they're always looking over their shoulder. I think him saying that we need, you know, the all gas, no breaks mantra, the this isn't a destination day, you know, saying that he knows that he needs to keep on working. The fact that he's talked about, you know, his cutting edge offense and the fact that he continually needs to scheme for other player for other teams, I think that all points towards and are examples of this positive insecurity trait for a leader. You know, he gets it. He gets it, and I think that's what is the most important thing. He understands that, you know, there, he's always has to be striving to be better. He can't just rely on what he knows. He has to go out. He has to improve himself. And it's something you did not see under Tom Herman. <laughs> and that's just the fact. It's We talked about in our last show, stubbornness was his fatal flaw. That's not something that you're seeing here. And that's a breath of fresh air. Yeah, I mean, part of the, the deal with Sarkeesian and, and what makes it such a unique situation, again, he's still, he's only 46 years old. That's young for, that's considered young for a power five head coach. He's had all of this experience, but Steve, Steve Sarkeesian can go in. He's somebody that's had very, very public adversity and very public setbacks. So you're dealing with 18 to 23 year olds. They're, they're going to screw up. They're going to be pretty much all of them are going to be situations during their four to five years on campus, three to five years on campus where they do something wrong. I think what's different between him. And I'm not saying, obviously again, not saying I'm a bad person, anything like that, but Steve Sarkeesian is in a position of power. Everybody has seen him lose that power and fail. And we've seen him also in a way resurrect himself. And he's not done with that resurrection project. Of course he can finish it all the way through by, by becoming by getting Texas back to being, you know, one of the more dominant programs in college football. But as a young man, when you when you screw up, which is inevitably gonna inevitably gonna come, you wanna be able to feel like those folks that you're working with, that are working with you, that you see every day that recruited you, you wanna feel like they actually give a crap about you and that they understand what you're saying and you know that you can understand, you know, you're gonna understand where they're coming from and you you have that mutual respect. You say you talked about having genuine establishing genuine relationships. If you know, just going by what he's been through, if this really is who he is, the person that he uh, portrayed in the press conference, I think it's going to it's going to pay dividends in the long run. The stuff on the field is going to come, you know, the stuff on the field is going to come. But the stuff off the field, the, the constant, you know, the constant distractions and turmoil, if he can cut down on some of that stuff, man, I think we could really see um we could see it play out on the field in a, in, a, in a manner that um affects the scoreboard without people actually, you know, being able to see it, you know, like, like, wow, Texas is kicking all his ass. But the truth is, I mean, everybody's focused. Everybody's on the same page. Everybody's got one mission. And that hasn't been always been the case over the past seven, eight years. Like what you saw with Tom Herman's teams against TCU or Kansas, right? What was that two years ago where the, there was turmoil inside the locker room and Tom Herman was not able to control it? and it led to losses that they shouldn't have been or close games that shouldn't have been. I get what you're saying. 
Another thing that I thought was interesting that he said, and it doesn't really make me pumped up, but it, it is interesting. He talked about the style of play, saying that the style of play will be an exciting brand of football, one that is attacking whether on offense, defense, or special teams. Their goal is to out-prepare and out-coach our opponents every single week. I think that goes into who he is as a coach. You've seen him doing a lot with scheming and schematics, but I was interested in the idea and the concept of attacking because at some points you can out-scheme yourself and you can out-attack a team. You know, we saw that with Texas and Todd Orlando on third and 17 against LSU. You know, but the idea here is that they're looking for a schematic advantage against their opponents, whether or not they have the superior talent or not. They're not going to be stuck in a system that is saying, we're going to do this and we're going to beat them over the head with our system until it works. We're not going to smash our heads against the wall until it works. They're going to be more schematic about it, which is a nice change, at least to hear. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Part of the frustration at times, you know, being a Texas fan is sometimes you feel like guys aren't always utilized, you know, to their best, to their full capacity. And of course, I mean, I'm, there's been there's been plenty of times I've talked about on this podcast where I experienced it, not talking about myself, but just watching other guys who you knew were talented not get an opportunity or not be used the way that we saw them be used, you know, as high school players. You know what made them so attractive, you know, and, and um, he's a guy, of course, you know, he he was at Alabama where they've got um, you know, Alabama's got a uh, got Rolls Royces while everybody else is driving, you know, Chevys. And it's hard at times, you know, how much was that is that, you know, just straight up just having better players. They would have succeeded regardless of scheme. But um, I, I feel like Steve Sarkeesian and, of course, you know, Kyle Flood's coming. He has an offensive coordinator title, but it, it's going to be Sarkeesian's offense. He's going to be the play caller. He's the type of guy that you would think would be able to have uh, Jordan Whittington and Jake Smith on the field at the same time, figure out how to make that happen, you know, yeah. somehow and stuff like that. So that's definitely exciting. I do think we, as fans, you need to – tap the brakes a little bit i know that yes. the mantra is all gas no brakes oh, i agree but um you're, you're, you're not gonna have a you're not gonna have a receiver you know have 1500 yards receiving next year i understand the excitement pretty much he had the, the nation watching during the national championship it was an audition i mean it wasn't an audition it was pretty much his tune in to watch the texas you know program what you hope to expect for the next his first know, recruiting pitch to his players and to his recruits exactly and um you know and we'll talk about it later on and impress Everybody was impressed, including recruits. But um, I think it could also possibly create some slightly unrealistic expectations. But, I mean, this is the University oh, yeah. of Texas, so what? What? that's nothing new. Slightly unrealistic expectations are our middle name, Darius. But let's go ahead and talk about the other side of this honeymoon. And Tom Herman experienced it as well in 2018. Most coaches experience it. Every coach. You know, Jimbo Fisher experienced it in his second year. Charlie Strong experienced it in his second year. Every coach. The honeymoon with recruits, where you can sell an idea without having something to back it up. Well, not the second year. Your second, your your first full recruiting class. Your first class. full yeah. recruiting class. Yeah. Yes. Right now, you've already seen that happening with Armani Winfield, who shown that, hey, maybe the 2022 class looks to be alive again. Maybe this is why they made that change is to – inject new life into this program and to get your fans excited, get your boosters excited, and then mm -hmm. get the recruits excited. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be working. And you've seen it again with the commitment of Armani Winfield. Who is he, Darius, and what does he bring to Texas? Oh, Armani Winfield is undoubtedly one of the top in-state wide receivers in the 2022 class. And, um, he is a consensus 
top 15 wide receiver nationally on all the recruiting websites and everything. He's a consensus top 120 overall recruit in the country. Armani Winfield is about six. He's six two. He's he's in a six two range, maybe six two and a half. Um, he's really long. He's long. You know, got about a six six seven six eight wingspan. He's got a big catch radius. But uh, unlike most taller guys, Armani's not really a jump ball kind of guy. You know, where he just runs down the field and jumps over everybody. He's a guy that you want to get the ball in his hands quick. He's a guy that at his size, despite being six two. Uh, he's about 180 pounds. Despite being long limbed, he's a guy that has he has quick twitch ability. He is able to um to make multiple moves in a small phone booth and then get up to top speed relatively quickly, which you don't which you don't see very often with those bigger guys. Um, one of the f- posters on the site said, you know, anytime I see bigger receiver with smaller receiver agility, I think CD Lamb. I'm not going that far with Winfield. I'm not calling him CD Lamb or anything like that, but I do understand um that he has the talent to see the field as a true freshman. And I, I got to coach Winfield um, at a camp uh, when he was still in middle school. And um, the camp was for high schoolers. And, I mean, he he, he stood out even then at the time. Um, we were, I remember we did it up there at Flower Mound Marcus High School. He's really tight with guys like Quinn Ewers, Caleb Burton, Faison Wilson. You know, and there was, there was a time when it was looking like um, Armani was going to end up part of the Ohio State class as well. So for him to make that decision to flip so quickly – it just shows you and it shows me and I think it should show everybody, you know, other people that, you know, a lot of these kids are still Texas fans, but they have to have a reason to come. It has to be a good reason. Right now, again, with this gun with this twenty twenty two, it's gonna be Sarkeesian's first full cycle class. Like you mentioned, every new coach um in a big position gets that first year bump. And I I now look like it looks like um we're going from a situation where Texas was probably you know, looking at another class that would be in the teens, uh, possibly high 20s. So now we're looking at a class that's going to – it's got a potential to be a top five class, in my opinion, especially with the coaches you have on staff. And they're already familiar with the state. Yeah. Um, but Armani Winfield – recruiting these guys already. Right. They've been negatively recruiting Texas for, for a long time. So now they're, they're going to have to – Turn that one around. Yeah, they're going to have to flip that. But, um, no, Armani Winfield is big time. I think um, – well, I don't think I know Armani Winfield will be – if he was part of his 2020, 2021 recruiting class for Texas, he would be the top receiver in the class. Um, by the time he gets to campus, again, he's got a chance. He's a guy that's going to play outside, in my opinion. He's an X or a Z in the Texas offense. But um, he's a guy that's got a chance. By the time he gets on campus, he's got a chance to play early. Very, very yeah. talented player. One thing in your write-up on the site that interests me and really spoke to me was he's a guy who doesn't want to jump over guys. He's a guy who wants to run past guys. And for anybody who hasn't watched Steve Sarkeesian talk about his offense – it's quite interesting. He talks a lot about his RPOs, and it's they're very simple. The main concept, or what a lot of people think of as a slant, he calls a run to daylight. Basically, that's their route, is run to daylight. Run where, you know, if you're a man, run past the guy. If there is zone, run to daylight. I like that. The idea being that you get a guy catching the ball in motion. Because, you know, when somebody stops on a curl route or something like that, I'm as fast as that guy at that moment. Getting a guy who can run the daylight, catch in motion, like Armani Winfield, seems to be a guy who will work in this type of offense, a guy who Steve Sarkeesian is looking for. And I think he saw that, and he's been you know, having that pitch thrown at him at Alabama for quite a while, and then he saw it in the national championship game, went through halftime, was like, that's enough, I get it, I'm going to commit here. Well, what you saying? You just said he's a guy he could instead of calling an RPO slant. So, if so, for example, the way I was always taught, and the way a lot of these kids think, well, pretty much all of them think now. You call a slant, 
I'm thinking of the way it's taught. I'm taking three steps, then breaking or taking five steps, then breaking, whatever it's called. But when you say Sarkeesian says run to space, run to daylight. Now that takes away that that stops me from being a robot thinking, OK, three steps slant. That, that all goes out the window. It's get mm-hmm. open. And just that it comes back to now. I'm not thinking I'm just playing the game. I'm playing the game. I grew up playing outside in the backyard. Remember, you didn't do all that. You didn't do any thinking. You just played. So mm-hmm. for you to mention that, it gives us a little bit of insight. I could take something from that. It gives us some insight to the way they teach. And that makes a huge difference. And another guy who has a ton of wide receivers to to count from and from his you know years of coaching, Mike Gundy. And how he teaches his routes is – you don't touch me. It's a game of tag. So if it's a go route, you don't have to be a straight route. Make sure that the guy doesn't touch you. That means curving routes and missing guys on purpose, running to space. That seems to be more of what you're seeing nowadays in terms of route running. It doesn't have to be a perfect route, but a good route means that you are getting open and that might mean, hey, you're playing tag or you're running to space. That's what you're seeing here more, and that's what you're seeing in Steve Sarkeesian with a guy like Armani Winfield, and that's what they're talking to him about. Now, Darius, going away from more X's and O stuff, let's go back to recruiting because it is not just Armani Winfield who's been taking note of the national championship and the coaches coming in like Jeff Banks, Bo Davis, Kyle Flood, and Stan Drayton. You've seen it from a number of other guys, including, I believe you reported yesterday, the talks with Quinn Ewers have opened back up, actually opened back up. Not just, you know, hey, we're going to talk later. They've actually talked. Yeah, it's already taken place. Yeah, I, I got a tip that um, conversations between Sarkeesian and the and the, the Ewers family did happen um, at some point earlier this week. That could have been Monday, Tuesday, or yesterday. Don't know. Doesn't really matter. But contact has been made. And um, something to think about, too. Um, I don't know if y'all noticed, but Urban Meyer is taking the job with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Ohio State's quarterback coach, Corey Dennis, happens to be Urban Meyer's son-in-law. And I haven't seen that mentioned anywhere, and I'm just thinking out loud. But mm-hmm. if Urban Meyer is taking a step up to the NFL, again, you take people with you that you know. And, I mean, Corey Dennis is literally family. Right. So getting a chance to work in the NFL for him is a life-changing opportunity. I have to think if Urban Meyer does look that way, and, again, that's his freaking son-in-law. <laughs> so I would think the odds would be pretty high yeah. that he would. There's a chance that Ohio State's losing their quarterback coach. So now the person that you were committed to is gone. And now Texas has um a guy that is as well respected as anybody, you know, outside of maybe a Lincoln Riley in the industry as far as, you know, his offensive mind and developing quarterbacks. Well, we got a whole new ball game now. And Quinn Ewers is still just a junior. You know, usually those guys, you know, commit by the time he's a senior, he's graduating early, all that, it's still a bunch of time left in this thing. The dominoes are starting to fall. The wind turned them around and blew them back this way. They're starting to fall back in Texas's direction. Now, I'm not saying it's happening or anything like that, but the odds are a lot higher than they looked to be a week ago. It's not just with him. It's with other players like Jaden Blue, who went out on social media and talked about behind the scenes with a number of other guys. You have Brennan Thompson talking about Texas guys who you weren't even thinking about having a chance at this class because of the trajectory of the program, you now have a shot with. And, you know, 2022 is looking alive again, that class. Darius, I mean, what have you been hearing? What have you been seeing with these recruits and the 2022 class in regards to Steve Sarkeesian and the the staff he's bringing in? 
I mean, well, you just mentioned some names. Jadon Blue, who tweeted out, you know, hook him with the hook him emoji um, earlier today. Jadon Blue's, one, yeah, J- yeah Jadon Blue is the top running back prospect in the state, um, as far as I'm concerned. And then the the, the second rated running back in the state, Tavoris Jones from El Paso. If you remember, Texas was Tavoris's first offer, um, a year ago. They offered before anybody, so Texas is sitting pretty for the two top backs in the state. And I mean, you only got to land one of them. And once you see these guys, um, I've got a top, I've got my list coming out on the site, the TFB Texas site tomorrow, actually. Um, if you want to take a look at it, I've got those guys on there. I think Jadon comes in at number eight overall. Um, Devores is number 17 and I've got their highlight tapes attached there and everything. If you want to take a look at them, but Texas is sitting pretty. Texas is sitting pretty for, um, for the two top backs in the state. Obviously, yours is the top quarterback, the second rated quarterback, in my opinion, Connor Wegman. Texas offered um, about a month ago, still in the Herman, but I'm sure that offer will be re re given back out with all the momentum. And if Texas produces on the field, I'm talking, you know, they've got to win, you know, they got to win nine, 10 games. But if it all comes together again, we're looking at at, at a potential um, top three class overall. But um, out of the top 50 players that I have ranked in the state, 27 of them play offense. I've got um no twenty five of them play offense, twenty two play defense, and three of them are athletes. With two of those three athletes leaning towards defense, so it's kind of <laughs> I didn't do that on purpose. Right it's coming out middle. almost right down the middle. Um, you've got out of the top fifteen prospects in the state, s- seven of them play in the trenches, um, offensive line and defensive line. In that top fifty, there's there's something for everybody. The defensive back class comes back in a big way after a down year in twenty twenty one. Texas has a chance to fill a lot of holes um, in this class, and they have a chance. 2020 and 2021 were pretty down years. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But um, it bounces back in a big way in this year's um, 2022's um, crop as well as wide receiver, as always. I mean, it says Texas. But um, the Longhorns have a chance to right a lot of wrongs from the from that 2021 recruiting class with this group, and I think they've got the folks in place to do it. And like you mentioned, those kids are already taking notice, and – Kids in the following class, 2023 and 2024, are also taking notice. So it's really on them just not to drop the ball, okay? Steve Sarkeesian even talked about it himself, saying, we have the excitement, we need to capitalize on it and keep Mm -hmm. it going. And I think that's one of the things that's an obstacle facing Steve Sarkeesian is keeping that excitement going and extending the honeymoon for as long as he can. That's the first thing, that's his first obstacle. Because... Currently, we've talked about it before. We've been talking all all show. We are in the honeymoon phase period with fans and recruits. The honeymoon phase is the best time to build relationships and really build the foundation of support around the program from donors, fans, high school coaches, and media. He's going to need to make sure that this honeymoon period lasts as long as possible. You have to do that, again, with winning or at least meeting expectations. And the reason I think this is an obstacle is he set pretty big expectations early, not just with the win in the national championship and that offense, but with what he's been saying so far coming into this program, saying, I don't think it's going to take us as long as many might think. We've got a talented young roster. I think we're going to hire a tremendous coaching staff, and we're going to continue to recruit the best players in the state of Texas. Now, that that last part is coaching speak, but he's not tempering expectations for this class. He's not tempering expectations for his first year and trying to install his offense and his defense and understand who he has on his roster. That was an issue that Tom Herman ran into. It's an issue that a lot of coaches run into, and you really can't go up there and say, 
oh yeah, you know, I, I, you know, we have a really good team, but we'll see what happens come this season. You can't really say that, but this is the position he is now in is, hey, if he doesn't win 10 games this season, then he's in a position that, that's difficult. And, uh, you know, it was something, again, that hurt Texas' perception last year was Herman not tempering expectations after the pandemic hit. And you're coming into a year where, where the first two games of the year are going to be against top 25 opponents and you're projected to be probably third in the Big 12. It's not going to be an easy winning year. You know, you're not going up against three cupcakes to start off like you would at Alabama. This is different. And you don't have the town that you had at Alabama. Who's the big game next year? Arkansas. And you also have Louisiana with Billy Napier. Okay. So you're going to have two difficult teams to start off with. You know, I'm interested in seeing how he does against that, but it's getting those two first wins are going to be crucial in getting to a 10-win season, which is going to be crucial to continuing to build on the excitement that he has right now at Texas. Damn, they're playing the, the Raging Cajuns, Louisiana, the one that beat – damn, they are. Wow. So you pop it off, yeah, Louisiana, University of Louisiana, then you're at Arkansas, and that game is going to be – you know they're going to find a way to get fans in those stands, and uh, there ain't nothing that uh, <laughs> folks from Arkansas get them fired up more than you start talking about Texas. So you got Texas going into that stadium, and Arkansas hadn't and been And they're no not good. looking bad either. They had a good season. Well, And, and Sam Pitt in his second year, and he's looking for a signature win. So what I'm saying? Yes. <laughs> he beats Texas. He buys himself five more years. So you know, everybody leaving him alone, let them do his job. So no, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna get straight into it next year with a brand new quarterback, um, brand new coaching staff. But something I want to mention too, and I know we're talking about recruiting, and we're not really talking about the football team for next year, but something to mention, and I'm sure we'll get into it on a, on another another show at another time. But this is gonna be the offense's third. It's gonna be third third offense for those guys in three years. Mm-hmm. And, um, and their again, defense in three years. That's what I'm saying. And I, I understand the expectations, but that's tough and it shouldn't be underestimated. Um, the importance of having that type of continuity for kids, but, um, it's, it's on them. They're getting paid a lot of money to get it right. Will. So I know nobody really want to hear that, but, um, I just think expectations overall for everything should always be a little bit more measured than I've been seeing right now. But, um, I understand the excitement. I really do. People are expecting 10 wins in year one. And if he doesn't get that, it's going to be an uphill battle the rest of the way for him because people are going to say you didn't hit expectations in year one. So year two, you better hit them, or year three, we're looking at you on the hot seat. Like what happened with Charlie Strong, like what happened with Tom Herman, it's just an all-too-familiar pattern that we've seen. Again, he's not starting off with a very easy schedule. Uh, mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see what happens there and how – he can extend the excitement and continue the excitement of his hiring in the first year. With Tom Herman, it came crashing pretty damn fast with Maryland. We'll see. We'll see. The next big hurdle he has is building a staff because we saw that be the downfall of Charlie Strong and Tom Herman, them bringing in their staffs from their previous stops. We talked about our last show and Tom Herman thinking that he had the best staff on earth from the University of Houston. This staff that Sarkeesian is building up is looking pretty dang good on the offensive side. You know, you have Steve Sarkeesian, who's going to be your basically your offensive coordinator. He's going to be your play caller. He's going to be helping with the schematics. He's going to be basically playing Lincoln Riley in Lincoln Riley's first few years at Oklahoma. And he's brought in his guy, his A.J. Milwee. He's going to be here, and he's the guy who 
a lot of his offense at Steve Sarkeesian's offense at Alabama, a lot of it apparently was due to Milwee and how well he has done as an offensive coordinator. And again, we talked about it last show. If you watched him at Akron, if you watched him before his stops at Alabama, his offenses were pretty dang good. So while he's an unknown as a recruiter, he's apparently a very good guy on the boards, on the whiteboard. So you have that to start off with. And you have Stan Drayton. Do you have anything you want to say about Milwee? No, I'm just, uh, it's funny because you're about to mention all these coaches. Uh, uh, Milwee, um, he kept Drayton from the year before, um, kept Coleman, Banks, Flood. Where did Milwee, Banks, and Flood come from? Alabama. Comfort hires? No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I know people would never, you would never think you can get, you know, get those coaches from that staff. But, um, yeah, no. no. <laughs> Flood is a great hire, supposedly. We've seen, you know, we've already, we've seen it with Wickline, right? We thought Wickline was going to be a great hire, didn't turn out to be. Cal Flood, though, has done a great job of recruiting and developing as a coach. Jeff Banks, I mean, the pole assassin, his, his girlfriend with the with the pet monkey and everything. Mm-hmm. You and I have talked off off air, but you know, have a recruit play with the pet monkey and he's in, right? He's he's been a yeah. ace recruiter wherever he's gone. I mean. At Texas A&M, he brought in five-star Kyle Allen, five-star Christian Kirk. At Alabama, Ajaya Hall, Christian Leary, Jalen Milrow. He had a hand in the, the Brockermeyers. He brought in Marcus Banks away from Texas. He brought in Court, Court, uh, Courtney Davis, Colton Blanton, Kendrick Blackshire, Tara Laka, Max Wright, Jordan Davis. It, just all of these names that should ring a bell if you're a recruit, Nick, he's brought in. He is a solid recruiter. He is a very good recruiter. He's kind of your, your guy at Texas. He's the guy who you bring in and you want as a tight end coach. Now you have to pay out the butt to get him, but luckily this go around, they're actually giving the blank check for assistant coaches and the coaches actually using it. Yeah. So Banks has been a guy that's been recruiting against Texas for the last decade. Um, you could say he was at A&M. Where was he at before A&M? Uh, I don't, I don't know where he was. Yeah, he's a guy with that's very, very familiar with the state. They couldn't have made a better hire for the for the freaking tight end position. I think I saw something mentioned about special teams, so I don't really know what that has, how that affects Blake Gideon. They're gonna have one hell of a special teams unit. <laughs> you would, you would think so. You know, you would think so anyway. But no, Jeff Banks is a grand slam hire, as is um offensive line coach uh, Kyle Flood. I can't believe he pulled it off, man. I, I thought, you know, I thought once he got flood, that's going to pretty much be about it. You know, that's it. Nick Saban's going to cut that off. No, all you can do is, you know, you got to give him, you got to applaud him there. Got to applaud him there. He was at UTEP before A&M. That's right, UTEP. That's what I was thinking, UTEP. So he's got strong ties to the state. He's got strong ties to the state. So you have Jeff Banks, and then the one thing that we weren't sure of last week was the wide receiver coach. And it looks like you're mm-hmm. bringing back Andre Coleman Mm-hmm. Which, you know, it's not a super exciting hire, but you also wonder how much Andre Coleman got to flex his muscles under Tom Herman mm-hmm. in terms of recruiting and in terms of on-the-field stuff. I'm interested to see what Andre Coleman can do under Steve Sarkeesian. Maybe he just needs a good offensive coordinator be- to be under. But there's also the chance you bring in Wiggins from Alabama too. So that would leave you with an unbalanced coaching staff with six offensive guys and four defensive guys. Well, let's go back and, and talk about what are your thoughts on them bringing back Andre Coleman? Uh, I like it because like I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm a fan of continuity. Okay. Andre Coleman. I didn't think Andre Coleman did a terrible job last year. 
Um, I had some issues with the rotations, but I mean, we had issues with the rotations at every, every freaking position with that offense, running back, wide receiver, not getting other quarterbacks enough work. We had issues with rotations with everybody, which makes me think that it possibly could have been a directive. You know, more than likely it was a directive from the head coach. But um, I, I respect Andre Coleman. Again, he's a guy that played in the NFL. He's coached guys up at Kansas State in the past. Um, he gets rave reviews from the players and from parents. I just think, you know, if he, if he interviewed and he, you know, Sarkeesian felt comfortable with him, I've got no problem with them bringing back Andre Coleman or Stan Drayton again because I, I'm a fan of continuity. And I, I thought those guys did a pretty solid job, had a, did, a, did a solid job last year, again, outside of the rotations. And, again, with the offense, we, we had that issue at every spot. So if we still see the rotation issues again this upcoming year, then – Obviously, we know what it is, what it was, but um, mm-hmm. I'm, I've got no problem with them bringing back Andre Coleman. Yeah, and like we talked about last show, the current coaches or the coaches that were there before are supposedly your floor. They are the guys who, you know, if all else fails, you're going back to them. And some positions that would be terrible, but this position, it was like a, it's a toss up. It's a we'll wait and see. You know, Andre Coleman again. We'll see how he can do with developing, which is supposedly his strong suit and building relationships in person, which he didn't get to do during the pandemic. Now, bringing in Wiggins. If you bring in Wiggins, that's an interesting, you know, the inside-outside wide receiver stuff, and you have the same issue you had under Tom Herman, which is an unbalanced staff, where once they got that 10th assistant, it was used on the offensive side. So you had six and four offensive-defensive assistants. I, you know, I don't know if I like that, because I think both sides of the ball are just as important. You know, you have 11 guys on both sides of the ball. You should have equal coaching on both sides of the ball. So, you know, if you bring in Wiggins, he's supposedly a very good recruiter. He's a good developer. He also had a lot to work with at Alabama. But I'll be interested to see what he does with the defensive side if they bring in Wiggins. I just, I don't, I don't see, I've been places where they had an inside receivers coach and outside receivers coach, right? Usually like, Usually what ended up happening was one of those guys was the actual real coach of the receivers and the other guy's job was to recruit. Um, between Andre Coleman and, and Holman Wiggins, I, um, if you were to bring in, you know, both of them, it would be an outside inside receiver coach situation. I would have to assume Wiggins would be the one you have out on the trail, but, um, Wiggins wasn't responsible for those guys that, you know, we've been seeing at Alabama. Remember, he's only been there two years. So, my thing with that would be what is the plan? Yeah, I mean, what what where's the proven recruiting chops um, for either one of them? So that my question would be, I, I wouldn't really understand that move mm-hmm. um, personally. I mean, hey, he's gonna do what he feels is best. I think, I think if you're gonna have two position coaches, I would rather have two on the defensive line like we just saw this past year. Um, with Mark Hagan and Oscar Giles, but um, you know, Homie Wiggins is a guy we continue to see get mentioned. We continue to hear chatter about so we just you know and then texas has done a great job sarkeesian he's done a great job of keeping the lid on everything we've been guessing you know folks have been guessing on a lot of stuff um the misdirection has been excellent i don't see the point in bringing in another wide receivers coach talking about the defense in general let's go ahead and get into that because i have thoughts on the defensive hiring so far for the defense it seems like it's a bit of a collage of big names you have bo davis you have Blake Gideon and Terry Joseph, who's a big recruiter, potentially Oscar Giles, who hasn't taken anything off his Twitter page like other coaches have. So, I mean, he's still in the hunt. It seems like it's a staff that you were building for a defensive coordinator you were expecting to come, like Muschamp, 
And then when he says no, you still are building it together. You're sticking sticking them together and trying to find a defensive coordinator who can make it work. And there are pros and cons to this, in my opinion, Darius. It's the pros of not being beholden to a defensive coordinator's hires and him bringing along his own guys who might not be you know, the best. He just likes them. But the cons are that also makes it harder to land a defensive coordinator. You know, For the exact same reason that it's a pro, it's also a con. They want to bring their own guys. They want to feel comfortable with the guys they have. Now, a lot of these guys are bringing in, like Bo Davis, you, you keep him on any staff. He's a blessing to have on any staff. But then, you know, Blake Gideon and Terry Joseph are guys where maybe you would feel comfortable with your own guy there. On top of that, building a staff without a clear vision. Uh, you know, even though, again, most of these guys would be on most staffs and most staffs would love to have them either way, we don't know yet even if this defense is going to be a three or a four-man front officially. It's probably going to be a three-man front. But we don't know what the vision is of this defensive coordinator. So... You're building the staff without a real clear vision of what you want. Or that's what it seems like right now. I could be completely wrong. If you talk to Steve Sarkeesian, oh yeah, he has this vision. But right now, it just seems like you're going out, getting the biggest names, and just kind of sticking them all together. I feel like I mentioned this last week during our, during our deal, but for the hires, for defensive hires to have been made without having a coordinator in place, I initially thought, I mean, you thought he had to already know who the guy was going to be. A gentleman's agreement that, um, that I thought he already had somebody in place. So if that wasn't the case and, you know, those hires were made, you know, of Gideon, of Joseph, if it were mainly focusing on the defensive, um, defensive backs, if those were made without having a coordinator there, then yeah, I mean, I think there, if we, you know, if there ends up being, I don't think it should matter really who the name is, but if there are issues during the season with the defense, um, the secondary was a, was a, point of emphasis for a lot of people as far as scrutiny this past season even you know especially our own uh, super k thought you know thought the secondary was bad this past year he thought people he talked to um within the conference other coaches thought the secondary was bad this year so if we still see secondary issues this coming season i think that could you know that could be something that we need to remember that defense coordinator wasn't the guy that brought those guys in it's definitely different it's different because you don't you don't just up and leave as a coordinator you don't you don't go by yourself <laughs> right. Exactly. That doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't. It doesn't happen. So, I'm fascinated to see who the choice is, and I'm fascinated to see who he brings with him and how it all fits in. Um. But um. What are the names that we're we're, we're hearing right now that we think is, is narrowed down to? You have Zach Arnett, Pete Golding, and then maybe Jeremy Pruitt. He's the name who just came out because he's under investigation. Probably gonna get fired from Tennessee. Mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll get into all these names later. But those are the three names right now. Right now, who are you know, as of when we're recording this, which is the 14th. And like you said, I feel like Steve Sarkeesian has a guy or has an idea that he wants. And he even talked about it in his press conference. He said he wants an attacking defense and that you can't play defense on your heels, that you have to make the offensive players and coach feel uncomfortable. So he wants a defense that will be bringing blitzes and less so reacting and more so making the offense react. He says he's, focusing more on minimizing explosive plays, stopping the run, creating turnovers, getting stops in the red zone, and affecting the quarterback. And that's a lot, but it seems like it's a defense that would tend more away from the more conservative Chris Ash defense and more to one that you saw with Todd Orlando. And that's one reason that Texas will probably end up with a 3-3-5 t- system. Now there's, you know, Tom, the Texas fans are pretty much 
scarred by the 335 after dealing with Charlie Strong and Todd Orlando. But the system, there's nothing inherently wrong with it in itself. I mean, Ash runs a version of it and where he has the Jack often play with his hand in the ground or with his hand off the ground. Just playing along the line of scrimmage. We've seen it before, and there there is different ways you can make it multiple and have it so that you have even I've seen five guys like Zach Arnett or Pete Golding bring up five guys on the line. There's ways to do it. It allows you to be a lot more multiple, allows you to bring a lot more blitzes from different areas. And also next year, I think regardless of what system you have in there, I believe it's going to work, at least for the first year, because you're going to have the returning production the veteran leadership, and just the guys to work with. It's going to be like what you had in the first year or two of Vance Bedford and Todd Orlando where their systems worked because they had the guys, they had the leadership, they had the veteran production with them. What I'm going to be watching for with these defensive coordinators that we're about to talk about is what the systems will look like after year one, after they lose all this veteran leadership and all this production. How sustainable is their defensive system? Yeah, and the part that's just a little bit concerning for me is bringing in a guy that doesn't really have much experience with the Big 12, you know, with the conference and how everything works. Mm-hmm. We saw Ohio State trying to play four linebackers against Alabama during the national championship. It was just, you know, lunacy. And um, the, the the hope, that's that's my real concern because in this conference, well, you're not going to shut folks down. You're not. You have to. You 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 want to try to hold folks what to the in the high twenties. Having somebody and then what usually happens too is either it's one of two things. Either they get here and they they need to have they need time to adjust, so they struggle early and, and get better like Ash did, or they're great the first year and then they get figured out in year two, year three. Um, once opposing offenses have uh, have some tape on them, and I just with the names that we have available again, like you mentioned, Golding. Um, Arnett, I just, none of them, I'm going to be honest, none of them, none of them are exciting, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend like, um, I don't, I'm starting to think a defense coordinator hire might not matter that much. (laughs) Just looking at everything that's been done on offense, man. I, I, I'm, cause I'm not, I'm not in love with, with, with Arnett. And I, if I'm not mistaken, didn't he interview at Oregon and LSU? What I've been told with Zach Arnett is that, you know, he's an ardent 3-3-5 defensive guy, and he's great he's having grown up in it. He went to college to play in it, and then he moved up the ranks in college football using it. You know, why I like the four-man front, again, the 3-3-5 quickly became a favorite of coaches against the spread because it allows them to do a lot of multiple things, and it has allowed Zach Arnett to quickly work his way up. And it's easy to negative recruit against for defensive linemen in, in this That's state. That's true. That's true. But – Zach Arnett, the reason that people like him, and I watched film today on him. I watched him against Ole Miss because Ole Miss was putting up, you know, crazy numbers against teams like Alabama and other big names, and watched him against Ole Miss and Alabama and see how his system works. You know, I left a little bit impressed with what Zach Arnett did. You know, Zach Arnett he brought his three three five scheme to Starkville, and under a year. Arnett left an impression like what Ash did at Texas, but maybe even greater because his defense began the year with a lot of death questions, more death questions than Texas did and more inexperienced questions than Texas did. And those two things, they somehow, they were done away with. And he gave 
Mississippi State, one of the best units, one of the best defensive units in the SEC. They were fourth in the SEC, I believe, in rush defense and total defense against teams like Alabama and Ole Miss. I mean, they played in a very tough Western SEC conference. It's interesting that he was able to do that in his first year. He's a young, exciting head coach. And the system he brings in is a pretty fast-moving system. It has a lot of moving parts, and he seems to attack. You know, he seems to attack the offense with a good countermeasure on the backside. Again, it's a little reminiscent of what Orlando ran when he brought up a lot of blitzes from odd angles and a lot of twists. But it seems like he does a good job of knowing when to call blitzes from where. And I think that's one of the reasons why he has done so well is because not only does he have a system that is you know, the hot new thing in college football, but he's done well calling it. I don't know. I just, I hear defensive coordinator at Mississippi state. I start thinking Manny Diaz and Manny Diaz sucked at Texas. So that's part of the, I'm just, well, maybe I'm scarred. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. One of the, one of the different difficulties is, and where I was going with this is he's married at three, three, five. And he also has a number in mind when it comes to being paid. And with a seven digit buyout from Mississippi state where he just got an extension it leaves a lot of teams wondering, okay, is this guy worth it? Like what you saw at LSU in Oregon. I don't think he's worth it. That's one of the reasons that he's been hard to, you know, he's been passed over a lot of times is he, he's very particular with what he wants. Maybe even stubborn. He wants a lot of money and he costs a lot of money to get. So those are the knocks against him, but he has built a defense out of absolutely nothing, which is impressive. I'm not excited about Arnett. Well, you know, I'm not excited about the next guy we're about to talk about, Pete Golding, but he seems to be the favorite to get the job. Pete Golding from Alabama came from UTSA under Frank Wilson, was stolen away from him because he was supposedly a spectacular coach uh, who blew Saban away, not just with how well he presented on the board, but of how you know he could connect with people. He blew Saban away and quickly rose the ranks in Saban's program. You know, he's also a young coach, again, system that allows for skilled players to make the most of their abilities. Supposedly, he has ties to Texas, and he was the guy that OU wanted over Grinch, but Saban held on to him. You know, I, that, that's potentially what he brings. He's supposed to be a great defensive mind. He knows his defense inside and out. Now, the cons here are... Alabama fans don't like him, and Nick Saban is looking to replace him with a guy like Will Muschamp or maybe even bring Jeremy Pruitt back in. Saban has, as we said at the beginning, you know he's had 14 different coordinators in college football. Eight of them have gone on to become head coaches. Why is Golding not beloved? Why is Golding not the one of those guys who's being coveted to be a head coach? It might be because he's too young or he's unproven, but... If he really did so well Alabama, he would be a guy who at least was getting a G5 coaching offer as a head coach. There's a reason Alabama fans don't like him. The media nor the fans are big fans of him. I looked on Roll Bama Roller SB Nation site, and it was like, wow, Pete Golding is terrible. You know, when you read that, it reminds me of Herb Hand, right? With Herb Hand at Auburn, and they're coming off of the loss to UCF and giving up seven, what was it, seven sacks? And people are like, Herb Hand is bad. And then Texas goes and hires him. And then Texas found out, oh yeah, maybe he's not as great as we thought he would be. You know, why hire a guy who Alabama is potentially getting rid of? In the case of Golding, I think it would be, well, one, it would be obviously one, it would be because of the familiarity that 
um, he and Sarkeesian have with one another, of course, going against each other in practice every day uh, for the past, you know, two years or so. But um, with, with Golding, my thing with it will, I would be more – I feel like I would be more excited about Golding than Arnett because I, mean, I have a hard time – not being excited about a defensive coordinator that just won a national championship, just went undefeated. And I understand, yeah, he was at Alabama and all that, all that stuff. I get all of that, but I don't know. At least he's got some experience winning. He's been around a winning culture and winning program. He knows what it's supposed to sound like, supposed to look like, you know. Arnett's been in Mississippi State not doing anything. I don't know. I mean, Again, with these defensive coordinators, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm of the mindset that I'm starting to think it may not really matter that much. You see, I think. You know, when I watched Pete Golding and his, his play calling, I, I wasn't impressed with how he was able to back himself up. And I feel like it came out in the numbers as well. One of the big knocks on Chris Ash, as we talked about earlier in the show, was his passing defense wasn't that great, right? His run defense was amazing. It was elite. But his passing defense wasn't great. And, and sure, that's a, that's a valid argument. The numbers are also skewed by a defense that went from bad to great over the year. But it's valid. Chris Ash's defenses had trouble with the pass. On the other hand, I don't see how this means bringing Pete Golding in with all the five stars at Alabama. He only managed to give up 20 fewer yards per game in the passing in the SEC versus the Big 12. And advanced statistics back that up just as much and don't account for the difference in talent he had at Bama with all the five-star players. So if we're going to look at advanced statistics here, you know, we just looked at the non-advanced statistics, and he's, he's only slightly marginally better at Alabama than Ash was at Texas. But if we're looking at statistics, advanced statistics, Pete Golding's defense wasn't immediately better. Texas under Ash, they were 41st in EPA, which I explained earlier in the year. 40th in defensive FEI, which is basically a measurement of how good a defensive is. And then 43rd in defensive efficiency. Whereas Alabama, with better talent, was 51st in EPA, 27th in defensive FEI, and 34th in defense efficiency. So just 13 or 10 ranks better than Texas, but with all the talent that they had over Texas in a system that was already in place this year, the beginning of this year. So I don't see how, when you look at all of that, and you look at, you know, they have Patrick Sertain as a pass coverage guy who's going to be in the first round. And Alabama was dragged forward this year by their offense, and Texas was dragged forward by their defense. I don't see how bringing Pete Golding in, and I'm not saying that he's a bad coach. I think Chris Ash was a step up. I don't think Pete Golding is a guy who would make me excited. I would be very much wait and see on Pete Golding and seeing how does he deal with the Big 12. If he had that against the SEC with Alabama's defense and those players, what would he be like in the Big 12? If, if Chris Ash was available, I would have been my vote to keep Ash and um, retain Giles, have Giles and Davis together, keep Hustler at linebackers, let uh, let Ash handle the safeties and be the defensive coordinator. Um, as far as the advanced metrics and stuff, I'm gonna have to defer to you know to the smart people like you and others that understand that stuff. I it I start hearing that stuff, it sounds like Mandarin. But um, just looking at it again, there's no option left that's gonna be you know a home run hire like like the rest of the staff, and we've we've understood that, we've accepted that, and I, I hear you on Pete Golding, I hear you on Arnett. I understand how important it is, and that's why you're getting so fired up about it because yeah, like you said, he's gonna be. We think the offense is gonna be fine, but the question is, what's the what's the defense gonna do? But just with what's left. I don't, man. <laughs> I don't see why he didn't stick with Chris Ash. 
That's what I would have liked, but you know, you it's know, not. you're you're going. In my opinion, Pete Golding not a bad defensive coordinator, but Ash was a better one. And you have continuity on that on top of that, and you have a guy who showed that he did pretty damn well. And bring in just bring in a different safeties coach or bring in a different cornerbacks coach. Bring in somebody who you can trust and has shown has skins on the wall. And, you know, I guess which wouldn't be Terry Joseph, but. Bring in a guy who you know is a good coach and then deal with it that way. You know, I guess in the last defensive coordinator you have is, is Jeremy Pruitt. I think this would be a likely home run hire if he wasn't going to be shortly, probably shortly under NCAA investigations because the Tennessee internal investigations right now, have, which haven't involved the NCAA up to this point, it centers around investigating possible impermissible benefits to players and recruiting violations, which means he's probably going to be untouchable for a few years. Yeah, he might have to take a few year vacation like uh, like Bo Davis did. But um, I mean, out of those options, Pruitt is obviously the biggest name. We know he would make <laughs> he would make stuff happen on the recruiting trail and things like that. Man, it's, it's like it's either going to be Arnett or Golding. Um, you prefer Arnett. I'm in a boat to where Hell, they about the same. <laughs> um, man, I think hey, we might he might pull a surprise, Will. He might shoot, he might pull he might pull Kevin Steele from Tennessee who just got hired. We don't know. Like I said, we thought Jeff Banks was out. We thought Kyle Flood might not come. We thought Holman Wiggins was in the boat. We thought Muschamp. We don't know. They've done a great job, like we said, like like we mentioned at the beginning, man. But shoot, I'm Oh no, big dog. I don't know. My my palms are up. <laughs> my palms are up. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they deal with guys like Terry Joseph, who's a safeties coach by trade, Blake Gideon, who's a safeties coach. Also, seeing how they juggle that. The linebacker coach is probably going to be reserved for your defensive coordinator, and then you bring in a cornerbacks coach who will probably follow that defensive coordinator along. It'll be interesting. But I think on that note, we'll, we'll get more into all of this next week. Thank y'all for listening. This has been 4th and 5, your Longhorn Nation podcast. I've been your host, Will Bazer. You guys can find me on Twitter at W-I-L-L-B-A-I-Z-E-R. My man, DT, where can we find you? Y'all can find me in the same place, D-T-E-R-R-E-L-L-0-5. Hit me up. Got any questions? Also, you can find me on the TFB website, TFB Texas. Holler at us. We have a bunch of notes up every single day. It seems like we have 5 to 10 notes up a day now. It's just crazy with all the information coming in. So it's definitely if you're, worth if you're it. not on TFB, you're behind at the water cooler conversations. You're behind. You're the, you're the guy learning stuff instead of bringing the information. Yep. You guys can also listen to our, our other shows and, and whatnot. Talk about the basketball team that just, oh, man, that Texas Tech game. Dagger. Matt McClung will make Manu Ginobili blush with some of his embellishments and falling out and stuff. <laughs> but, hey, True. he hit that shot, man. He's a heck of a player. He's a heck of a competitor. True. So you have, you know, our, our episode, our basketball podcast. You have the other, the now fire Steve Sarkeesian show, which again, it's it's a, it's a joke. It's, the name is a joke. You have our other podcasts and listen to our takes from last year. Fun stuff. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you all next week. Hook them. Hook them. <laughs>